I've been involved in um, justice work for about 10 years. I've done a bunch of disaster relief, about 10 trips with uh, a different group called Crisis Response International. But they stopped doing trips because of COVID, so I trained with the Red Cross about a year ago. Uh, I got called in the March, because I speak Spanish, to help with the unaccompanied minors at the border. The job was to work in the shelter, and um, in the first few days, we got to yeah, certainly care for them, take them to breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and we started doing some English classes, and we'd get out maps, and they'd show us their journey, and they'd show us where they're going, and so forth. But each day we got a couple hundred kids every night, and so we'd show up at 6 a.m. for a meeting, at 7 a.m. we hit the floor, and there'd be 500 boys, and there'd be 900 boys, and by the time I left it, after two weeks, there were 2,300 teenagers. One of the really awesome things about that volunteer experience was just getting paired up with these other Red Cross volunteers. A retired military guy in his 70s, a retired government guy, probably close to 70, an Uber driver, and me. And again, we had these hundred boys, and you know, we wouldn't choose each other necessarily to work together, but we became this really cohesive team. When COVID hit, and I was reading about how hard it was on families, and how there's so many people with food insecurity, and how lots of people that have never experienced it are experiencing, like even in our neighborhood, and we don't know who they are because they're afraid to go and get help. I kept thinking, well, is there something that we could do to, to do that? And so this little, project I thought about um, was this little pantry, this free little pantry, right? Could we put food and, and toiletries and other things there so that someone could anonymously go and, you know, when things are just kind of not, ends aren't meeting and they're just a little short, could they just go and get something? That's awesome. So you're the one who started the one out here. That's so cool. So I'm involved with the Ration Challenge through Church World Service, CWS. So what you do is you sign up online and you raise awareness and funds for refugees. And what you do is they send you a ration package and you wind up eating the rations of a refugee for a week. So you get a tiny little glimpse of what the refugees have to go through and what they deal with, but then you're also able to wear, raise awareness to other people. So with the money that's raised, it goes directly to the refugees in Jordan or around the world to provide rations, to provide COVID relief kits, to provide medical care. It makes me feel very full inside, warm in my heart to know that I'm helping even just a little bit. Because I've read that there's, I don't know, 15,000 and plus unaccompanied minors coming. And I was working with these 2,300 boys and really only 100 of those boys for two weeks. So that's just a tiny, teeny drop in the bucket. But, you know, at least I did something. And then um, on the short term, I just, the relationship, like I said, with the team, these four totally random people, how we worked together and just supported each other and cared for our boys. And then um, the boys themselves, I just grew very, very, very fond of them. Yeah, I think my whole life I've always had a soft spot for a, someone that's vulnerable or someone that's not being um, just given a fair shot or, you know, just kind of always the, you know, we call it like the least of these, but I always think of, you know, Everyone should have a chance. Every kid should be able to do the things that you know a kid should do, or no one should be hungry. And you know, this is such a wealthy country. No one should be hungry in this country. And so I just have always had that soft spot, and I always think about solutions and could I do something? Could I not? And 
most of the time I feel like I fall short and there's nothing I think I can do, but these little things, maybe we can. It makes me feel like I can do something, right? So oftentimes myself, maybe others included, I can get caught up in my own day-to-day -day life and so focused on myself and not realize, oh, there's other people who need a lot of help but also what makes sense for my, my life. We have busy lives, we have busy schedules, and what small way can I give back? So people who haven't stepped out yet, I would say start small. Start in a way that makes sense for you. Um, it doesn't have to be this elaborate gesture and nobody has to see it. Um, you know, just one small thing, picking up a bar of soap and putting it in the pantry or making a donation or signing a petition, it doesn't have to be this grand gesture for a snowball effect to happen. Um, yeah, start, start where you are and what makes sense for you and your family. Those three ladies are just like you. They have busy lives and yet they have dedicated a part of their life to what we call here tikkun olam healing or repairing the world. And we launched uh, the Do Good, Feel Good campaign in March. Maybe you've already forgotten about it, but we haven't. And we did it uh, to create an environment where you can easily integrate justice, tikkun olam, into your lives as well. And we uh, created a website with a lot of opportunities listed. Uh, you could see the link behind me. You can come out today out by the, um, in the parking lot on the west side of our parking lot here. We also have um, Medicine Horse, which is a therapeutic uh, riding uh, ministry here that have brought their miniature horses, and so the kids can come out and, and pet the horses in between the services. I should let you know that we have a lot of need for our, our little pantry. If you want to sign up, we need people to help manage that. Get involved. And... Um, we purposely are not designing or creating uh, large events where we all show up somewhere together. We're trying to instill that you as a family, you as a person, you with your kids, that this just becomes part of your life. Whether you do it once a month or once a week, uh, make it a part of your life. Make tikkun olam uh, integrate into the things that you already do. Okay. And also, oh, I wanted to tell you... Welcome to my baby here, Uniendo Los Puntos, my book in Spanish. Yay! So um, if you're Spanish-speaking, come see me. I went on like a three-week tour in Mexico City uh, just a few weeks ago and had an amazing time. I'm so excited about that. Um, so in 2008, Andrew and I, it was our second sabbatical here, at Cornerstone, we give all of our full-time pastors a two-month sabbatical every seven years. And so I was on my second one. We went to Israel, and we stayed there the full two months. And most of the time, we were in Jerusalem. But there was a, 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 about three or four days that we drove up to the north into the area around the Sea of Galilee. It's called Lake Kinneret in Hebrew, or that's how the Israelis pronounce it. And we stayed at this really unique bed and breakfast. The husband woke up every morning at around 5 in the morning and started playing his harp and singing psalms. It was a little strange, but it was also kind of cool, too. Um, and he asked us one day, he said, 
He said, hey, would you guys like to go for a boat ride on the Galilee? Well, yeah, of course. He says, all right, so go down, 3 o'clock today, go down to the dock and ask for Shlomo, which is kind of a short name for Solomon. And so we did. We got down at 3 o'clock. We asked for Shlomo. They said, there's no one here by the name of Shlomo. And he said, why, why are you here? He said, well, we're, we want to go for a ride on the boat. Well, the guy says, well, come in my boat. So we get on this guy's boat, paid our money, got in his boat. We get out about three minutes, and he comes up. He says, oh, I forgot to ask you. Do you need to come back to this dock? I said, yeah, we do. We, we drove here. He says, well, we're not coming back to this dock. I go, well, we got to come back to this dock. He said, well, hang on. Two minutes later, another boat pulls up to the side. In the middle of the Galilee, we change onto this next boat. And the captain of the boat comes up and says, why are you in my boat? (laughs) So we told our story. She says, well, we're headed in. I go, well, I paid for a boat ride. She goes, well, hang on. We have a new tour group coming on the boat. It'll take about 15 minutes, and we'll be back out. And so that's what happened. We got back out. But before we left, the tour guide of this tour group comes up to me, and says, uh, the, the captain says, she'd like to ask you some questions. So she leans forward and goes, do you speak English? <laughs> Which is kind of cool. Like, there was a question about that. I like to... I said, yeah, we speak English. Okay. This is a Christian group. Is that okay with you? <laughs> yeah, I'm a pastor. That's okay with me. So we, we get out, we sit down, and typically the pastor of the group does a little devotion on the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's really, you know, what a cool spot. And usually the devotion has to do with something like Jesus walking on the water there. And so Andrew and I are sitting in the back with this tour guide. And so we, we get to talking, and she looks at me, and she says, take your hat off. And I take my hat off. And she goes, Were you, did you speak at this little congregation in Tel Aviv last Saturday? I go, yeah, I did. She goes, I sat right behind you. This tour group was right behind you. <laughs> so we got to talking. And, and um, at the end of the conversation, she says, well, it's Shavuot, which, I mean, it's Sukkot, which is the Feast of Booths. She goes, I never do this. Trust me, this is not something I do. I just feel like I want to invite you to come sit in our sukkah. So when you get back to Jerusalem, here's my phone number. And we did. And we ended up sitting in our sukkah. We've become good friends. She is now my only tour guide. I will not go to Israel once she stops touring. Uh, her name is Hannah Ben Chaim. Many of you have met her. And it was an amazing time. Took my first tour in 2000, a year later. And uh, we always arrange it so that Jerusalem is our last four days. And we come up from the lowest point on earth, the Dead Sea, and you always have to climb to Jerusalem no matter where you come from, but you really climb from the Dead Sea. And Hannah has this tradition. We've done this on every tour since the first tour. She probably did this on her first tour. You come through this tunnel. And when you get into the tunnel, she starts playing this cheesy 80s song called Jerusalem. But somehow it works. Because you're, you're anticipating coming on the other side of this tunnel and you see the light at the end of the tunnel. And you're singing this chorus, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And it's just like... Amazing, and you pop out, and immediately right in front of you is the Temple Mount, 
in this ancient, beautiful city called Yerushalayim. It's amazing. In fact, I, wanna, I just want to play you this first verse and chorus of the song. And uh, just imagine what it might be like to be on a tour like this and coming through that tunnel. Here it is. Imagine the whole bus. I know that doesn't do justice to what it's actually like to be on that bus, to come through that tunnel and to see Jerusalem. But it, I just, just trust me, those of you who have been on the trip, you know it sends chills down your spine because you're seeing this, this ancient city called Jerusalem. And it does it because there's something very special and spiritual about the city of Jerusalem. Well... For the last several weeks now, we've been looking at how God used Nehemiah to help rebuild this ancient city. Once the Israelites were finally allowed to return from exile after 70 years of uh, in being in exile. And we've been using the importance of rebuilding the city and the community, especially of Jerusalem, as a metaphor to the importance of rebuilding our church and our community once again. Doesn't it feel good to be together? Huh? Oh, my gosh. And uh, especially after being isolated from each other for, for so long due to COVID. And our lesson today is no exception to that metaphor. In Psalm 137, verse 1 through 6, which was written by one of the exiles in Babylon who never gave up hope of returning to Israel's eternal capital. Here's what he writes. He says, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we, we wept when we remembered Zion which is the, uh, a name for um, Jerusalem. There on the poplars we hung our harps, and there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of those songs of Zion. How can we sing songs to, of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. 
Wow, that's quite a statement, isn't it? I mean, you might expect a religious person like this to say, God is my highest joy. Or maybe his family is his highest joy. Or even a good shawarma is his highest joy. But the city of Jerusalem is his highest joy, really? And to get to the root of why this psalmist would make such a provocative statement like this, I've titled today's message, What's the Big Deal About Jerusalem? And you got to say it like that. What's the big deal about Jerusalem? Because if you're not aware of it, Jerusalem is a really big deal. And this ancient city plays a significant role throughout God's grand story and even beyond. And if the significance of the eternal city of Jerusalem is not included When you curate uh, a profile of your faith in Jesus, then you're missing out on what I believe is the best part of this crazy story that you and I are stuck in, whether we like it or not. Today's message is for those who are sick and tired of being sick and tired, for those who are weary of this life, for those who need even just a small glimmer of encouragement and hope. And my prayer is that before the end of this message, you will feel some of that emotion of what it's like to exit that long tunnel and finally get a glimpse of the eternal city of God, Yerushalayim. So let's pray before we begin. Lord, um, only you could fabricate that. I can't. And I pray that you would stir in our hearts this city that is special to you, unlike any other city in the world, Lord. Do that in our hearts. Give us a vision of what it means to you and what it means to us as well. And I pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. In Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1 through 2, it says, Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten of them to live in Jerusalem. So 10%. The holy city, while The remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commended all the volunteers who lived in Jerusalem. Okay, it's assumed by most biblical scholars, and I totally agree, that for some reason, and probably for safety reasons, not everyone had good vibes about living in downtown Jerusalem. The leaders were willing, because like all good leaders, uh, they step up to the plate no matter what the personal risk is to them. That's what leaders do. But only 10% of the rest of the people were asked to volunteer to live there. Well, they didn't actually raise their hands, did they? It looks like they became volunteers. They were enlisted as volunteers through a form of divine lottery called casting lots. It's like rolling a die for a certain number or picking a car a certain number out of a deck of cards. And it was believed that if the die fell your way, then it revealed God's will for your life in a particular situation. In this particular situation, it revealed who God elected to live in Jerusalem and who he didn't elect. And the text seems to suggest that those who were not elected were impressed with those who accepted this risky task. So, but let's dig a little deeper into why this would be such a risky task, even for those who are living in Jerusalem today, if you've been paying attention to the headlines that have been taking place in Israel this past week, even taking place right now. 
In the second half of 2 Kings, chapter 200 and verse 7, God tells us something really significant about this city. He tells us that he put his name forever in the city of Jerusalem. And it's very important not to quickly gloss over that word forever. It means that God's name will always be there. It transcends time. It's eternal. And you should also take note that there's a specific place in Jerusalem where God put his name forever, and that place is the Temple Mount, the location of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, which lies in ruins today. Hang on one second. Now, the text doesn't tell us how God put his name there forever, but the context seems to suggest that the temple itself is God's signature, his unique mark in the city of Jerusalem. And there are a lot of great temples in the world. There's the Ranakpur Jain Temple in India. There's the Angkor Wat Temple in Cambodia. There's the Temple of Heaven in China. There's the Temple of Hephaestus in Greece, just to name a few. They're all located in magnificent cities. But the important thing to point out is God didn't put his name forever in any one of those other places, nor anywhere else on the planet except the Jerusalem temple, which tells us that this place is different from all the other places on the planet. And because of this, the temple mount in Jerusalem plays a significant role in God's grand story, a role that will last forever. And of course, we might expect that if God put his personal mark in the Jerusalem temple, then he would protect and preserve this special eternal place. But history records just the opposite. And to say that he didn't protect and preserve this place would be an understatement because no other place on earth has equaled Jerusalem's repeated occupation and devastation. Jerusalem was first established 3,000 years ago in 1000 BCE when King David's army made a surprise attack on the Jebusites when they snuck through the water supply tunnel in the city. And then Jerusalem enjoys a moderate, not a complete, but definitely a moderate level of peace for about 400 years. But once the Babylonians ransack Jerusalem and carry off the exiles, Israel never regains full control of Jerusalem again, even to this very day. And the city is continually assaulted and occupied by a long line of foreign occupiers, conquerors. After the Babylonians came the Persians. After the Persians came the Greeks. After the Greeks came the Romans. And this is the period of time when Messiah Jesus arrives early in the first century. The Romans destroy Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD and Israel would be occupied 17 more times after the Romans by the Arabs. The Fatimids, the Turks, the Crusaders, the Egyptians, the Marmelukes, the Islamics, just to name a few. And each time it's occupied, Israel takes a deep punch to the gut as its natural resources are repeatedly depleted. 
Mark Twain visited Israel in 1869 when the country was occupied by the Ottoman Turks. And this is what he wrote about his experience. He said, it is a desolate country whose soil is rich enough but is given over wholly to weeds, a silent, mournful expanse, a desolation here that not even imagination can grace with the pomp of life and action. We never saw a human being on the whole route. There was hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere, even the olive and the cactus, those fast friends of worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. So much for the land of milk and honey. And so much for God protecting and preserving his capital city, Jerusalem, and more specifically, the Temple Mount, the only place on earth that he marked with his name forever. And so it's understandable that the majority of Jews during the rebuilding of Jerusalem preferred a safer living situation for themselves and their family. And in order to understand the purpose of this sad tale of Jerusalem, it's really important, and please Try to grab onto this. It's important to understand that what happens to Jerusalem in God's story is intended to parallel what happens to all our lives in God's story. The sad tale of Jerusalem is simply a version of all our sad tales. Because for many of us, our lives have been repeatedly gut-punched and ransacked over and over again in one way or another. Some more and some less, but we all have sad tales to tell. The prophet Isaiah in the book of Isaiah often personifies Jerusalem as a woman called the daughter of Zion who is constantly under siege, assaulted and covered with untended wounds. And sadly to this day, even though we've seen some positive changes in our society, women still represent the world's most vulnerable population of people and remain easy targets for assault and abuse. And God chose, listen, God chose to personify Jerusalem as a woman to underscore how fragile and vulnerable we all are in this world. I mean, yeah, you know, we kind of live, no, we live in a bubble here in Boulder. But the mass shooting at King Supers last month and COVID for this last year, all the deaths and the sickness should remind us all that we're never really safe. And just as God put his name in the temple of Jerusalem forever, every person of faith is God's temple which means he put his signature mark in us forever as well. That's why 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, you are God's temple. God's spirit dwells in you. Ephesians 1.13, it's not on the screen, but it says, through faith we have been marked in Jesus with the seal of the Holy Spirit. God's mark, his seal is on us as well. We have been marked by God forever. And when God marks anything, it makes them an easy target for repeated assaults. Think of the Jewish people. Think of Jerusalem. Think of believers. And like the Temple Mount, you would think God would protect us from trouble, but like the Temple Mount, history records just the opposite. 
when I first came to faith in Jesus, I was a pretty messed up person. I'm still messed up, but I'm not as messed up, okay? And I was, I was honestly, I was desperate for healthy role models. I just didn't have any in my life, and I needed healing. I needed good role models. And back in those days, I looked up to the leaders in my church, all great men and women of God that I admired, and I set my heart to one day be like them. And it took years for God to heal those wounds to the degree that I felt like even, even slightly like a healthy human being. But eventually, as, as God healed me more and more, I eventually, um, I'm, so some of those leaders that I respected as super godly people, and they, they were and they still are, they came to me for help with some pretty serious struggles in their own lives. Andrew and I even got involved with the family of a very famous pastor in Southern California whose daughter asked us to mediate some discussions around family abuse. And back then, it didn't take long for me to realize that we're all weak. We're all vulnerable. Every one of us, I don't care who you name, even the strongest and the most respected leaders struggle. Even the strongest of marriages are difficult. We all bleed. We all go to the bathroom. We all get sick. We all struggle. We all die. And the story of Jerusalem is intended to parallel our stories. Weak. And vulnerable to attack. And all because God put his name in the holy city and in each one of you. My life continues to this day to be one struggle after another. Don't ever think that I have it all together. Don't ever think that anyone who stands up here has it all together. We try to keep it real up here. First time Andrew and I visited Israel in 2008, we learned a lot. We learned how God had predicted the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. We learned how God had predicted the second exile. The Babylonian exile was just a local, a regional exile. But the second exile, the Jewish people would be scattered across the entire planet. We learned how God had predicted a land that would become absolutely barren. What Mark Twain was looking at was already predicted in the scriptures long before he ever visited. And all of that stuff happened just as God said it would. But we also learned how God predicted the return of the Jewish people back to Israel. How God predicted the restoration of the land with trees and fruit and vegetables. You visit there today and you'd say, there's no way this land was barren. But it was. It was less than 100 years ago. We learned how God would one day restore the ancient city of Jerusalem and how God said the temple would re be rebuilt a third time. And all that has happened exactly the way God predicted it with one exception. 
And that is the restoration of the holy temple, which still lies in ruin today, the very spot in Jerusalem where God says he put his name forever. Religious Jews are desperate to rebuild it. They have already remanufactured all the articles that go inside the temple. They are just waiting for a moment in history that allows them to go up on that mount and rebuild. But to this day, they are restrained in doing so because it remains in the hands of the Muslim world. Second most religious site in Islam. And, of course, if you've been monitoring the unfolding events between Israel and the Palestinians this past week, the rioting that has been taking place on the Temple Mount almost daily, the hundreds of missiles launched from Gaza into Israel, the death and destruction on both sides, then you are witnessing firsthand what it is like when something is marked by God. Forever. But if you're savvy enough to look beyond the American headlines, then you probably know that the real battle is not about Palestinian statehood, which, let me underscore, is a really important issue to resolve. That's got to get resolved. But the real battle is about who gets control of the Temple Mount, the place where God put his name forever. Most of you have heard the word Armageddon, which typically refers to that final battle, that final scene in God's story that takes place just before the Messiah returns. Many of the prophets wrote about this riveting climactic event in God's story. The word Armageddon, it only shows up once in your Bible. You know that? It's, it's such a big theological idea. It shows up one time in the book of Revelation. It's derived from the plain of Megiddo. If you've been on my tour, when we go up north on that first day, we cross over the plain of Megiddo. It's where the prophet Elijah had that little foot race. If you've ever read that story, the plain of beautiful rich, fertile soil for farming up there. The plain of Megiddo in northern Israel in Hebrew is, is, is known as Har Megiddo. Har Megiddo. Har is the word for mount. And so it literally means Mount Megiddo. It is up, elevated. The plain is very elevated. Har Megiddo, Armageddon. Can you hear how they're related? Har Megiddo, Armageddon. Many people incorrectly believe that the final Armageddon battle preceding Messiah's return takes place in Armageddo, but it doesn't. I mean, Armageddon is named after Armageddo, but that battle does not play, take place there. Armageddo is, 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 is only where a massive conquering army assembles, assuming that you're tracking and think that since God has predicted everything that's come true so far, maybe this last part will come true eventually as well. I think the odds are in his favor. And so it's only the place where this sea of conquering 
people uh, assemble. And that's exactly, if you look at this one, only one verse in Revelation 16, 16, that's exactly what it says. That the kings gather there with their troops. Where are they headed? And where does this final battle take place? To Yerushalayim. To take over what? The Temple Mount. And this battle takes place in the Valley of Jehoshaphat, also known as the Kidron Valley, which sits right adjacent to the Temple Mount, only about 30 or 40 yards away. Super close. You can throw rocks into the Kidron from the Temple Mount. In other words, Jerusalem will not have complete shalom until that battle is finally over. And guess what? We will not have complete shalom until then either. It's kind of ironic that one of the most famous psalms exhorts us to, in Hebrew, shalu, shalom, Yerushalayim, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Shalom literally means, you know, we've taught on it here, it doesn't just mean peace, like the absence of conflict. It means wholeness, completeness. And the irony is that we are praying for the peace, for a peace that will not be whole or complete until Messiah returns. And so when we pray that prayer, the deeper thing we are asking for is for Messiah Jesus to return quickly. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord. And so if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, if you're weary of this life, if you're done with being gut-punched, then you get this hopeful prayer more than anyone else. Because when Jerusalem finally gets peace, you, we, finally get complete peace as well. And the longer I live, the more I realize that I can't fix this broken world. I can't take away the pain and suffering that we all experience. I can do my best, like things like like do good, feel good, to alleviate or lessen the pain of suffering. But I can't make it go away. Not any more than anyone has been able to make the pain and suffering of Jerusalem go away. It's all heartbreaking. And we feel, at least you should feel, for all Israelis and all Palestinians right now. But the beauty, the beauty of the story of Jerusalem is that it's not hopeless. We are not without hope, and neither is your story hopeless. There is a day coming when the world will experience complete and total Shalom. Do you still believe this? You know, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus left. Jesus even predicted that most of us would fall asleep. Like in the days of Noah, we just go about our business, partying, having fun, losing sight that there is an end to this story. Well, a new beginning. The prophet Zechariah writes about this final battle in Jerusalem. And he talks about a massive, invincible army that assembles in the Kidron Valley. That not even the military shrewdness of Israel will be able to withstand. But just when all attempts to defend Israel has failed, just when it looks like it's going to be curtains for them, this is what Zechariah writes in chapter 14, 
verse 3 through 4. Verse 3 begins, Then the Lord. Those are the three best words in the Bible right there. I love that phrase, then the Lord. Just when things look utterly hopeless, just when you can't stand the pain and suffering for even one more second in your life, then the Lord. Maybe you need a then the Lord moment right now. Hang on because it is coming. The text says, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. How does God fight on a day of battle? He wins. God never fights a battle and doesn't end up the victor. You see one day, and maybe even sooner than later, I mean, is it not difficult to imagine such a scene in Israel in the not-so-distant future? I don't know. I'm not here. No man knows the day or the hour. But especially in light of last week's events where for the first time in decades, all of Israel has become vulnerable to attack. Usually it just happens in the south. Not that it's, you know, okay to beat up the south. But Hamas has launched missiles into all of Israel, to the north, to the Galilee, to Jerusalem, everywhere. But on that day in the future, sometime, then the Lord, and he will defeat Israel's enemies once and for all, as he will on that same day defeat your enemies once and for all. All your relationship failures, all your addictions, all your pain and suffering, And Zechariah goes on to say in verse 4, on that day, that day that God defeats our enemies once and for all, his feet, meaning the Messiah's feet, will stand on the Mount of Olives just a stone's throw from the Temple Mount, and he will establish his eternal kingdom forever. Now listen. I know that everybody in this room has some kind of eschatology, some kind of end times narrative about how things go. Just throw that out for a second, okay? And just think of this as a story. Because Revelation 21 tells us what this day is going to look like. And the worship team, please come on out now. And as I read this section, I would like you to close your eyes. And I would like you to imagine that you're about to see this eternal kingdom for the very first time. Imagine that you're sitting in a seat of a bus that's taking you there, a seat that was reserved for you since before the beginning of time. God elected you before the beginning of time to be on that bus, in that seat. Imagine that you've just entered that long tunnel approaching Jerusalem and feel the anticipation as you see that hopeful light at the end of the tunnel. And by the way, don't you find it interesting that that many people who have near-death experiences often describe traveling through a tunnel toward a bright light? Are you ready? Are your eyes closed? Do you have those images in your mind? 
Here's what John wrote when he had this vision. He said, then I saw, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Wait a minute, aren't we the bride of Christ? Are we somehow connected to Jerusalem's story? You bet. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, behold, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And here's the good part. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Can you imagine this moment? Every pain, every tear that you've ever shed, he will wipe away. There'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain because the old order of things has passed away. Just meditate on that scene for just a moment. It's a new beginning for everyone. The old is gone. All things are new. We are finally in the presence of God forever. All pain and suffering and sorrow are gone forever. No more being sick and tired of being sick. Ever. No more being weary of this life. Ever. No more gut punches. Ever. And then John says in verse 22, he, he says, I, I, I don't see the temple. <laughs> He's Jewish, right? He's a devout Jew, and he's expecting to see a temple. Well, he does see a temple. It's just not what he expects, right? He expected to see one that had the continuation of the daily sacrifice. What's different about this temple? He says, the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. No need for daily sacrifice because the ultimate sacrifice is there already. Yeshua, the sacrificial lamb who bears the marks on his hands and his feet forever. And then he mentions that there's no longer any need for the sun or the moon because God is our light and Jesus is our menorah, our lamp. This whole story has always been about the temple. The only place on earth where God marked his name forever. What is that mark? You know what I think it is? I think it's the holes, the marks on Jesus' hands and feet. An everlasting reminder that God took our pain. On his shoulders. Can you even imagine this scene slightly for a moment? Well, maybe you need a little more help. So, what I'd like you to do is to stand up. I want to play the last verse and chorus of that cheesy 80s song. <laughs> May it be a blessing to you, as it is a blessing for everyone 
who takes my tour as we approach Jerusalem and come out of that tunnel to see the holy city. And as we have a tradition here, if you feel comfortable at any time, just lift your hands to the Lord because this is where we are headed, my friends. Whether you know it or not, Jerusalem is your final address. Whether you visited in this lifetime or the one to come, that is where you will be spending eternity. Let's roll it. Once again, my dream was changed. New earth there seemed to be. I saw the holy city beside the crystal sea. The light of God was on its streets and the gates, they were open wide that Go through the tunnel, sing it out. Jerusalem.